Welcome to Voices United, a congregational song podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Brody, and in this episode, I visit with Dr. Lim Sui Hong, who teaches at Emmanuel College at the University of Toronto. Sui Hong and I met in July 2018 in St. Louis at the annual conference of the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada. Welcome, uh, Sui Hong, to uh, this time together. I'm grateful for you taking the time to um, have some conversation with me. Um, could we start by, uh, would you start by sharing about your earliest memories of hymns or congregational singing? Well, thank you for having me, Ben. Um, my earliest memory of congregational singing was when I was a little boy. I'm living in Singapore and I was uh, in Sunday school. And my, because I'm not from the US or Canada, I grew up in Singapore. The, my earliest memory was singing Jesus uh, loves me this I know in Mandarin Chinese. Mm. So that's my earliest memory. Of... Mm. Mm. <laughs> that's great. Tell us a little bit about your faith journey. I grew up in a Christian home. Both my parents were Christian and I'm presently the fourth generation Christian and we were of the Bible Presbyterian tradition. At present I'm Methodist but when I was growing up I was actually Bible Presbyterian which was a much more fundamentalist, conservative uh, strain of um, reform tradition. We would go to church and we actually would memorize Bible verses as a congregation and mm. we will recite it back mm. when the pastor uh, directs us to do so uh, just before he preaches the sermon. So, so that was my background. And mm. uh, then when I was in high school, I was introduced to a bit more charismatic Pentecostal Bible study group uh, in high school. And, and I started attending those services, but I found them a little bit too noisy for my taste. And so I wanted to find somewhere in the middle. And so I visited Anglican churches um, in the neighborhood, and I've also been over to the Methodist. And I felt a sense of belonging when I joined the Methodist Church uh, in Singapore. Was your heart strangely warmed? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I found the reason why I said I found a place was because the pastor was very welcoming <laughs> and knew that the struggle I had uh, when I was uh, on, uh, on the Bible Presbyterian side because there I was making music, I was playing for the, the service, well, playing for the worship services, and I could not improvise. Mm. The Bible Presbyterian Church uh, did not allow me to improvise at that time. And so with the Methodist Church, the pastor said to me, Oh, Sui Hong, you can do whatever you want. And, <laughs> and that really got me going and uh, got me excited that I could finally use my gift and to mm. serve God in, and really felt a sense of freedom to do so. <laughs> and I got more and more involved in the music making of the Methodist Church. So, so in that sense, um, and they were not so... Uh, well, they were very open to the mix between the more charismatic, experiential side of Christianity while still having a very strong focus on preaching. Mm. It was also there that I began to listen and uh, appreciate uh, the Dave and Dale Garrett people, which were scripture and song group. Mm. Uh, it was also there that I began to learn about Hosanna Integrity music and I learned about Maranatha music making there. So it was there that I was dabbling with uh, those contemporary uh, music making mm. while at the same time still learning piano J.S. Bach and Chopin and Rachmaninoff and so 
So when I was growing up during that period, I was actually dabbling on both sides of the fence. Mm. <laughs> so that was a good grounding for me, I thought, you know, mm. that God just put me in that kind of situation. Mm. Uh, when I got on to do my undergrad, somehow when I applied to several schools, I was rejected. And these schools were in UK, Australia, the US, and I never got my, uh, admitted to any of those schools. Instead, God sent me to the Philippines, um, mm. which was a three-hour flight from Singapore. And there, God uh, led me into a school where I was learning Asian music. Mm. That's mm. why I met Itolo. Mm. So to cut the whole uh, long story short, I finished my training there. I worked in the Methodist church where I continued to be doing traditional music making, classical traditional music making, as well as contemporary worship music making. I served as a music director of the largest Methodist church in Singapore for a while. And that's what I did, and until God led me on to pursue a, a career in academia. Hmm. And so that led me to North America to do my studies. Uh, then I returned back to Singapore to teach in a seminary, and then got hit hunted to go to Bela. And then from there, got hit hunted to go to Emmanuel College, and that's where I am right now. Oh, great. Well, just uh, hearing your story helps me to understand the variety of things that you do. Yeah. Um, you're a multifaceted musician, composer, historian, and theologian. But today, I want to focus particularly on your scholarship related to the history of contemporary worship. You have recently co-written a book with Lester Ruth titled... Loving on Jesus, a concise history of contemporary worship. Mm -hmm. And you're working with Lester Ruth on a much larger book on the same topic. That's right. Which will be uh, published in a couple of years, I believe. Right. While your book covers a variety of topics related to contemporary worship, I would like for this episode to focus particularly on congregational song in contemporary worship. Mm -hmm. In your book, you note that in contemporary worship, quote, music is in the driver's seat, unquote. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about this change, this different role that music began to play in early contemporary worship? Right, sure, happy to do that. Um, I think if we look at liturgical history, um, I'd like to say that there are three phases in what drives worship, what drives Christian worship, right? So the, all the way up to the, the Reformation period, you'll discover that Ritual was the primary driving force because the focus of the church in its worship practices was centered around baptism and communion. There were not extensive records about how good the preaching was. That came later. So you find that the early period of the church was much more ritual driven. Towards the 17, 18, 19th uh, century, you discover that preaching became a, a major driving force. Mm -hmm. Rhetoric became very important. Churches and uh, were centered around how good a preacher would be. And in fact, evidence of this remain in other parts of the world right now. In the global south, if you were to travel to Latin America, Asia, or Africa, you find that preaching continues to be a dominant hmm. force. People look for good preachers, will have a big flock of uh, people attending. And, and most pastorate would build or fall based on the ability of the person to preach. Mm. However, by the time when we start enter into the mid-20th century, we discover that music began to play a big role um, in the change in the worship life of the people. Mm. Somehow music has 
has uh, captured the attention and the imagination of the people. You find that, um, and that might be due to the fact that this fascination with music was also reflected in the public square. Mm. So you have the civil rights movement, you have the various uh, reaction on the ground, particularly in North America and the US, um, where songs begin to play a part. Peter, Paul, Mary, mm. Elvis, you have all this other people that are coming up, Bob Dylan, they, they began to sing stuff, you mm. know, and somehow this came to the church. Now, if you were to go to a traditional worship service of an evangelical church in the US in the mid-20th century, Sunday morning services would probably feature three hymns and the bulk of the time would be spent preaching. Mm. But when you go to the Sunday evening service, that's where the change happened. That's yes. where you can call for song, you can have different, you can have what we would term open mic session, mm. where mm. people would be invited to come and share their songs and stuff like that. But as we move on through the ages, as music takes off, you find that this fascination with music begin to creep into the morning services. Mm. And so that's why you see that somehow this sociological change in the churches also affected the, the worship life of, of, of the church. Mm. And so that informality in the Sunday night service right. was brought to the more formal Sunday morning service. That's right. The, the, what I would say that you see the loosening up of American mm. Sunday morning services. Um, as you move down through the ages, through the 70s, through the 80s, you find that things begin to be a little bit more informal. And also that also has to do with the fact that the, the young people were now coming of age and they begin to own the service. Yes. And so... The, again, like as we all know, right? I mean, every age group or every age segment of the population have their own playlists. Mm. So as the as the teenagers now become young adults and they, as they become mature, as they become to have uh, so called power within the churches, mm -hmm. that's what determines the shape and direction of mm. the music making process. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll notice that rituals such as Holy Communion and baptism, yes, they are they still remain important, but they are no longer the spotlight of. Christian worship. Ah, yes. Oh, thank you. You mentioned in your book the Jesus people as mm. some of the early adopters of contemporary worship music. Right. What were some of their influences and, and how would you describe their music? Well, their music would be interesting because they would come from an expression of their identity, an expression of their culture. And as, as I'm sure you're aware, Jesus people will typically will what we would say people who have come to God and their background would be hippie movement mm. and they were actually searching for a sense of identity of who they were. So people like Bob Dylan would heavily influence them, Paul. Peter, Paul and Mary. Ah, yeah, Peter, Paul, yeah. Mary. Yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot that. <laughs> but, uh, they, they would be influential in the yeah. kind of music that they write. So you find that the whole, that nowadays we're talking about, well, four chords makes a song. Well, that mm. comes from this particular era. So yeah. if we were to listen to Karen Lafferty's song, Seek Ye First, The Kingdom of God, that's where they were. At that time too, in the Jesus People movement, they were very concerned about the eschaton. Yeah. Eschaton basically means the second coming of Jesus Christ. The primary book that they were fascinated with was Hal Lindsay's, you know, the late planet Earth. I mean, if you were growing up in the 60s, that would be the main book you would buy and read about it. And, and you worry about the the nuclear holocaust is just just on the horizon kind of thing. Mm. And so this whole concept of eschaton became an important uh, fact that influenced and shaped their music. So 
music making at that time for the Jesus people returned to scripture. So you begin to hear scripture set to new songs mm. or new tunes. So Karen Lafferty and the others really played a part in nurturing the people to know the word of God through very simple scripture and songs mm. uh, music making. Mm. That's yeah. great. Thank you. When I think about, you mentioned Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary as influences. When I think of both of them, I think of simple songs mm -hmm. that even in concert, people are joining in and singing oh, yeah. on. And so it's easy to see how that would right. become an influence in congregational song, right. as opposed to maybe some other bands where their music is much more complex and, and right. less singable. Right. So, so if you look at contemporary worship at the beginning, they were very much what we would call song of the people or people's mm -hmm. song. They were singable. They were, there were very little technical editing of the music material that was there. But there are also, at that time, parallel to, the, parallel to that particular movement was what we call the contemporary worship group. So there's a, there would be bands called Love Song that would do more technical stuff, you know. But by and large, so that's why right now when you do contemporary worship studies, you need to be able to differentiate between contemporary worship and contemporary worship song. Mm. Or what Lester Ruth and I, we are now calling it contemporary prayer and praise mm. because there's a different level and we will explain this new phrase in a new book so I can't tell you about this here. <laughs> so we've got a preview. You've got a, you got a preview. Yeah, that we, are, we are basically seeing two different strands of contemporary worship that we can trace back even to the 1940s mm. and, we, and that will be in a new book that mm. you will hear about. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. As contemporary worship develops or contemporary worship music develops, especially as it moves into the 1980s, worship sets or the particular order and way of combining worship songs becomes more important. Tell us a little bit about this development. Okay, that is related to the way that m music is perceived. Like remember I mentioned earlier on that music takes the driver's seat. Hmm. Now, in the past, the fourfold pattern that we talked about in worship, like gathering, proclamation, response, either in uh, and as Holy Communion or Baptism, and then sending forth, seems to be the de facto model. Mm. And, it, and this particular drama is unfolded through the liturgy. Now, imagine that this drama is then embodied by the music making. Mm. So that is where the music making actually takes on the shape of, of, of the fourfold pattern. So music will gather the people, music will proclaim the Word of God, Music will be a form of response by the people of God and music that will be sending the people out. Mm. So once you understand this programmatic, programmatic nature of music making, you begin to see that the structure is now unfolded into the whole music making aspect. Mm. Mm. Thank you. In the 1990s, we see the influence of British worship leaders and composers, people like Graham Kendrick or Tim Hughes, Matt Redman, as well as music coming out of Hillsong Church in Australia. What new directions did this music represent? And how did these people and groups influence worship in North American churches? Well, the findings showed that uh, the move of having the, peop the people from Australia and the people from UK uh, getting into the North American landscape actually originated from the music industry. Mm. They discovered that when they learned about the particularly the music from the British and which Monique Ingalls called it the British Invasion, 
the lyrics that they had was much more articulate. Mm. They were able, they seemed to be better crafter of text. Mm. And so that with the coming in of the British experience, you find that there were a little bit more theological depth in terms in the contemporary worship music making. Uh, the same goes for for music that came out from Hillsong, particularly through Darlene Zesh, mm. who was the first artist from Australia for Hosanna Integrity. Prior to this, the Americans' homegrown music were basically, I would, I would say, people like Karen Lafferty that were really into scripture and songs yeah. genre. Much more s- simple text. Simple text, yeah. uh, very succinct, folk-based folk yeah. kind of text. Um, so it is the British and the and the Australian that also contributed their part and made the the text a little bit more articulate, mm. a little bit more dense. I would say, some people would say in in joke in a joking manner that well the British texts are too dense and too wordy. Mm. Yeah, yes mm. and no. They 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 are too wordy, but because it takes a number of words to express a particular theological idea. Yeah. So that was the influence that the British people actually gave to the American soundscape in terms of the music-making experience. Thank you. What today is most encouraging to you in the landscape of congregational singing within contemporary worship? What is most exciting for me is that there is now a gradual recovery of tradition Mm. in contemporary worship, particularly from the Hillsong Church you find that in recent years, they have begun to address the issue of liturgical texts. Like, for example, they have now set the creed Mm. into a contemporary worship setting. That, to me, is exciting. Mm. Chris Stondin and others have worked at reclaiming um, traditional hymns and and have given them, uh, have put a spotlight on them Mm. so that the next generation of Christians or younger generation of Christians are now beginning to learn about, well, we have Isaac Watts, you know. They may be be rendered differently, the performance practice is different, but this way of representing the traditional text have breathed new life to it. Mm. I think that's very, very exciting. Another group that is very important in the work, I think, would be the retuning movement. Mm. Um, Kevin Tweet out in Nashville and his group uh, has done incredible work. Um, San- Sandra McCracken has also done incredible work mm. where you they are actually retuning and re-paraphrasing and bringing new life to words that are solid in terms of their theological position and, uh, and knowledge that would truly strengthen the faith in, in our time. So that's very exciting for me. Mm. That's great. Thank you. What, uh, what most concerns you as you've observed uh, within congregational singing in contemporary worship today? What most concerns me is that uh, there are lots of emerging songwriters and the most common denominator that they share is that they are not theologically trained. Mm. And so that to me is a concern mm. because much of the texts are, re- are then written out of a personal experience mm. and maybe suitable for a personal devotional session for themselves, right? I mean, you, you're spending quiet time with God, you're, you're reading the Bible yourself, you're singing a song to God. That is suitable for you. Con- congregational songs are complex corporate element. They are corporate entity and they need certain skill set to craft them and they need certain technical ability to shape them properly. And and my concern is that there are many songwriters just pumping out uh, songs that have not 
gone through that crafting process and that uh, refining process. And it doesn't help that sometimes the industry, the music industry doesn't say, well, if you're a songwriter, you seriously need to be working with a pastor to craft your songs. They don't say that. And they have schedules, they have deadlines, right? You've got to produce an album within 18 months. And every 18 months, you need to have an album. I don't know about some songwriter out there. I mean, I compose songs. I mean, to churn out an album in 18 months, every 18 months, one could really dry up and burn out. Mm. So I mm. don't think that's a good way to go. So I think there's a need for pastoral care, mm. a pastoral guidance, pastoral mentor, mentoring, mm. and some sort of walking alongside uh, in developing the craft and the skill set to be able to really write songs that the church as a whole can sing. Yeah. How can the church do that? How does the church mentor songwriters? Is it financial support? Is it uh, developing communities of... Uh, do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I have some ideas to share about that one. Uh, I think right now I know of at least two groups of people who have really been help, helpful in developing new uh, uh, song leaders or guiding uh, new worship leaders. One group is by... Gloria and Bill Gator. Mm. They actually, out of their own love and care for new artists and new worship leaders, have taken under their wing people who are emerging, people mm. who are wanting to grow to develop in this particular area, and they have done an excellent job in, in nurturing them. Um, they have been really, I would call them pastors of songwriters. Mm. Um, so I think if there are any songwriters out there who really need to seek a mentoring or seek guidance, uh, Bill and Gloria Gator are the people in the evangelical world to mm. go to. Mm. Right, the other person or group that would one would consider working out with would be David Bailey mm. uh, of Urban Doxology. I think he has done a fine job developing a mentoring system mm. in, well, I would say hot housing the people for, for eight weeks. But I think after that eight weeks, there's still that intentional accountable uh, relationship that is there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so this is what I've seen so far. I'm sure there are other groups that are going on right now. The other person that I would mention would be Mark Miller, uh, who is a Methodist uh, based in New Jersey, who has also done much to nurture new talents mm. and, 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 and encourage uh, new songwriters uh, to develop their crowds as well. So mm. there are a couple of people that, that are out there doing this particular work. Yeah, thanks. Those are great thoughts. Mm. Well, I'd like to close with five questions that I ask of every interviewee on our <laughs> podcast. The first is, uh, which hymn or song has most shaped your faith? One of those, uh, okay, I, I, I love many songs. And one of the songs that really hit me hard, and I love to sing it and would bring tears to my eyes, would be Charles Wesley's And Can It Be? Mm -hmm. Because it really speaks to me about you know, the, the grace and the power of God's love that even I can be redeemed and that, that's amazing. You are a true Methodist. <laughs> Amen, Brother Ben. <laughs> what hymn do you turn to for comfort? I turn to, like most people, I will go to Amazing Grace uh, because I think that one is, is a song that really assures me that when I'm struggling in terms of what's coming up and how in the world am I going to face this, mm -hmm. Amazing Grace reminds me that 
God's hand is never too short. Hmm. Uh, oh, one more song. I just, I, you see, I'm a musician. I cannot <laughs> just say one. The other one that I really love, I'm not sure your, your listeners will know this, is He's Able or God's Able. Ah. It's a short little Sunday school song ah. that stuck with me uh, since I've grown up. So whenever I face a situation where, well, how am I going to find the funds to buy a car? Or, okay, how am I going to? Well, He's able. Mm. God is able. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, what is your favorite piece of music? <sighs> My favorite piece of mu- music, uh, not so much for me, but because it helps to put my children to sleep, <laughs> is Mozart's Little Nut Music. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I play that and they all fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, great answer. Uh, what book other than the Bible has most shaped your faith or influenced your vocation? Oh, that is hard. Um, the book that I grew, well, I, I will have to say, apart from the Bible, the one that really challenged my thinking would be a book on inculturation by Anska Chupunko. He's a Filipino liturgical scholar. And he was talking about how can the local church or the church or the congregation in the local context re- uh, claim the, its own identity and voice within the Catholic tradition. Hmm. Now, you know that Catholicism uh, comes out from, from Rome, and then so there's this particular form that is commonplace all around the world. Right? So how do you find your own expression so that your liturgical expression reflects a little bit of your culture, hmm. a little bit hmm. of your of identity of who you are? So to me, that particular, uh, his writing, hmm on inculturation, well, it's, a, it's not just one book, it's a series of five books that I love because mm. to me, that is the important thing for me as a Global South person in terms of trying to find out who am I and how might I use my culture to worship God. So mm. that is very important to me. Mm. Oh, that's great. And lastly, which hymn would you like to have sung at your funeral? <sighs> oh, Be Thou My Vision. Ah. I hope that... <laughs> Uh, and, and that continues to inform and shape the, the direction of my life in mm. terms of what I want, what I hope that I'm doing, that mm. I'm continue to be faithful serving God and that I have, that God continues to be central and the focus of, of the way I do my ministry. Mm. That's what I do. Well, Sui Hang Lim, it's been so good uh, <laughs> spending this time with you and I will look forward to doing another episode in the near future where we can talk about your other scholarly interests and and uh, but I'm grateful for this time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Voices United a Congregational Song Podcast is produced by Benjamin Brody with support from the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada and Whitworth University. Special thanks to the Center for Congregational Song for publicity and technical expertise and Whitworth University student Taylor Heath for editing and production.